Welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. So John 1, 12 and 13. And John writes, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I always struggled with that. This whole idea of being a stranger, but suddenly God decides that he wants to adopt me into his family. And I, I thought of human adoption, you know, when you're a stranger, you, you come into a family where you don't belong, you've never belonged, and there's this legal process where a child is taken home by people and they've never met, they, and they become your parents. And so I've always thought of this legal thing we call adoption. And we even um, speak about, uh, in the scriptures, the spirit of adoption. You know, but it's not a good translation. Because actually the word that we translate adoption in Greek is huiothesia. And it's two words. And it means to be placed into sonship. And it's not describing a legal process. It's describing something that is done. So you would have a man with... So, so I, these guys here are my, my kids, two boys, two girls. Girls don't count, unfortunately, when it comes to inheritance. So I've got two boys, and I, I wait to see, as they get older, which one of them is going to be the stronger, the best one to be my heir. Which one of them is going to be best, the best handle the inheritance that I'm going to give them? And so one day I decide that I'm, I'm going to pick one of them and I, I go to a public place with witnesses and I stand them there and I put a cloak on this son and I say, this is my son whom I love. And I go up to the table and I pick up a ring and I put a ring on him, which is a ring of sonship with the, the family crest and so it's also authority. Remember those words and those pictures from Scripture? This is my son whom I love. And it gives a whole new light of God putting the, the cloak of skins on Adam in the garden. It's like he's saying to him, you're still my son, you're still my heir. The picture in Luke 15 when the, the father puts the cloak on the son and puts the ring on his finger. Same picture. You're still my son, you're still my heir. Elijah putting the cloak on Elisha. It's like they enter into a, a father-son relationship, even though they're not blood-related. They enter into a father-son relationship whereby Elisha inherits the mantle and anointing and ministry of Elijah. See, I had this idea that God was not my dad and then I got saved and he became my dad. And I had all of these questions. If he's a good father, why did... Why did all these bad things happen to me in my life? Why was I conceived outside of marriage? Because the Bible said that, that puts me under a curse. And people would quote Psalm 139 to me. I'd get frustrated and angry and want to punch them. <laughs> but what I have discovered in these last 11 years is that he is my real father. I really am his son. There's never been a time when he was not my father. There were times when I was not living as his son. But I, 
I find that I truly belong and there's a rest and there's a peace in my heart that this normal human orphan existence doesn't allow me to experience. You know, the cross was not about punishing sin or sinners. It was a rescue mission to bring us home, to bring us back to where we belonged. And I want to show you today that God's not a stranger who took pity on you and said, oh, that's a shame, I'll bring you into my house. But I'm not bringing that one in. <laughs> he didn't just randomly pluck you out of nothingness and give you his name. He's your true father. He sought you out while you were lost. With only one purpose. That's all right. Don't be sorry. He sought you out to bring you home to the place you originated from, to his bosom, to his heart. And I, I see some of this in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through verse 28. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. There's that father thing again. The one who imparts life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men. That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And what you see, what the Athenians believed about themselves was that the original inhabitants of Athens were actually came out of the soil. And because the Acts 17, verse 22 to 28. And so he believed that the Athenians just sprung out of the soil of the earth. And that's why they built the city there, because that's where the earth produced them. And it, it made them unlike other people. They were unique, which made them arrogant, proud. They thought they were superior. And what Paul is doing is saying, I want to bring you a new perspective on your life and your origins. He challenges their perception of themselves. He tears up all of their thinking about their origins and who they are and reveals to them where they really came from. He gives them a, a totally new perspective, a new view of things. And what we're finding in this revelation is that our perspective has continually been changed. You know, I said I came into this revelation of God is my father in 2005 and I've been, been discovering that this revelation of his love, this, of sonship, is, it's a new perspective. It's a new way of seeing life in all its aspects. And so he comes as, as a father to bring his love, to give us a revelation of how things really are, not how they've been presented to us by life, by religion, by everything else. 
His love being poured into our hearts not only heals us, but brings us a new perspective of who we are and who we are to him and in him. And my whole understanding and perspective of life and church and Christianity, it's all changed. You know, I was saying to Andy this morning, I, I don't dare voice half of the things that, that I think because even I might believe I'm a heretic then. <laughs> you know, because I used to have my understanding of the gospel all neatly parceled up. I knew what it was, what it was supposed to be. I, I was like these Greeks. I was under the impression that I'm superior because I'm one of us and not one of them. You know, we have the two camps, there's the saved and there's the lost. There's one camp full of the children of God who are objects of blessing and there's those who are objects of the wrath of God and the anger of God. But when you read this passage of scripture in, in Acts 17, it totally changes my understanding and my perspective. And what Paul does, he quotes two Greek poets. I love the fact that Paul takes these pagans, who one of whom lived 600 years before Christ and one who lived 300 years before Christ, and takes their words and they become part of Holy Scripture. The words of pagans who knew nothing about Jesus and as far as we know, knew nothing about this Yahweh God that Israel worshipped. They worshipped the gods of Mount Olympus. And their words become God's truth. <laughs> Paul's quoting pagan poets to support his theology of God. And the first one he, he, he quotes is a man called Epimenides, who was from Crete. And he lived around 600 years before, before Christ. And he's saying, in him we live and move and have our being. He's saying, you know, all life proceeds from this creator God who took one man and from him produced all nations of men. You know, this God created the world. He put a man in it. And from this man, all humanity is descended. Every person's place on earth, their nationality, the age of, his, of history in which they would live on this earth was all determined by this God. He's saying, you didn't spring out of the soil. Your place in this earth was determined by this one whom you call the unknown God. And he intended that we should populate the earth. And he determined who would live where and, and where in history they would live. So there's no mistaking that I belong to God's chosen people, the Scots. You know there are only two types of people in the world. You know that, don't you? There are Scottish people and those who want to be. <laughs> no. But... <laughs> but there's no mistake about your birth. There's no mistake about the timing of it, or there's no mistake about your nationality. He knew you. And that's, that's mind-blowing for these Greeks. And as if that's not enough, he quotes another poet from Cilicia called Aratus. And he lived about 300 years before Christ. And this is what he said. He quotes from this poet. We are all his offspring. Paul saying, these pagans spoke God's truth. That was shocking to me because when I read that, I thought, the church doesn't have the monopoly on truth. The church doesn't own truth. It's God's and he gives it to whom he pleases. Even 
people who don't believe in him and don't know him. That's quite scary. For evangelical Christians have been taught that God has nothing to do with non-Christians. And Paul is speaking to all of these Greek philosophers who are meeting in the Oropagus to discuss different philosophies and ideas and and none of them, as far as we know, are Christians. As far as we, we are led to understand in this passage of Scripture, there are no believers in Jesus, no followers of the way there except for Paul and his team. Now, I was taught that God has nothing to do with us before we're believers, that we're, we're subject to wrath, hell, judgment, punishment, but then we get saved and we become his children. And yet Paul says to these pagans, we are all his offspring. He's telling unsaved people, you are his offspring. Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Sikhs, Jainists, atheists are all his offspring. That's quite... That's mind-blowing. Don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not, no one can live in the benefits of being a child of God unless they come to Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. But it is mind-blowing that he can say to these pagans, we are all his offspring. This God who put a man in the earth and created this place and determined your time and nationality on this earth, he is the one who has given all of us life. We are his offspring. And we need to understand redemption a little bit, I think. So let's go to Galatians 4. Paul says in verse 3 and verse 4, through to verse 5 actually, he said, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So he's saying, we may be his offsprings, but it's not until we come into this place of redemption that we actually receive the rights of sonship. We actually come into the place of inheritance and know that cloak being put upon us. And so he's saying, we were just like children, we were subject to tutors and everything else. We had no relationship with the master or the father of the house. We weren't living in the benefits of sonship. We, weren't, we hadn't yet been put into a position of inheritance by the cloaking ceremony. And said, for all the difference it made, we, we may as well have been living as slaves. In order to come into the place of inheritance and sonship, we needed to be redeemed. And it's when we receive that redemption we can move into the, the full rights of sonship. You see, what I understand about redemption is this. You can only redeem something that you once owned. You can only redeem something that once belonged to you. So I can take, I bought this iPhone from, from Apple, the Apple store in Glasgow. I bought it brand new. I didn't redeem it because before Apple gave it to me, it didn't belong to me. But I could take this phone now to the pawn shop, not the pawn, the pawn, the pawn brokers. And I can say, dude, I, I, need, I need money. 
And he looks and says, well, it's only an iPhone 6. It's not even a 6S or a 6 Plus. It's just a 6. So I'll give you 100 quid for it. 100 pounds. I think, I really need more than that, but I'm desperate for money. So he gives me the 100 pounds and he gives me a ticket. And he says, if you come back in 30 days with this ticket and 150 pounds, I'll give you your phone back. You see, that £150, that's the redemption price for me to recover what is mine. You see, while it's in the pawn shop in those 30 days, it belongs to me still. But it's not in my possession. It's been kept as um, security against the loan that I've been given. And if I come back inside 30 days with £150 and that ticket, then I get my phone back. And I have paid the redemption price. I've redeemed my phone. And so when God, when Jesus died on the cross, God didn't just buy us, he bought us back. Because we were his offspring in the first place. We weren't in his possession. We weren't in his company. We weren't enjoying him, but we were his offspring. And what he did was buy us back so that we could return to that place at his bosom that Jesus has prepared for us. When we were still sinners... We belonged to him. That's why Paul can say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To reconcile us, to bring us back, to redeem us to our original place. Think of it, you know, when we, we talk about people who aren't yet Christians, we talk about them being lost. It means they're not in the place they belong. They're in a different place. And when we want them to get saved or redeemed or whatever we want to call it, what we're saying is we want to bring them back to where they belong. You know, when the sheep was lost in Luke 15, it belonged to the shepherd while it was lost. It was still his sheep that he went looking for. He didn't just look for any old sheep. He looked for the one that belonged to him and brought it back. When the woman was looking for the coin, from her, or probably from her wedding veil, um, the coin belonged to her even though she didn't know where it was. It wasn't in her possession. It wasn't on the headdress. It wasn't adorning her, her veil. But it still belonged to her when she went looking for it. When the son came home, he came back to where he belonged. See, he'd gone out from his father, got himself all messed up and lost, eventually found his way back home to where he belonged. But while he was gone, he was still his father's son. You see, if from one man he made every person, then we were in Adam and Eve. We were in Adam and his wife before the fall. We see that principle in, in the book of Hebrews, don't we? You know, the Levites, the priests, collect the, the tithe, the tenth. But the writer of Hebrews says, well, you could say that Levi actually paid the tithe through Abraham when Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth because Levi was still in the body of his ancestor and it's the same for us with Adam and his wife we were still in their body back in the garden when Adam and his wife walked around in the, in, on earth we were in them and his plan was that they would multiply and subdue the earth with us with their offspring if they hadn't sinned, they'd still be alive. You could go and visit them, probably 
north of Inverness. I think that's where Eden was. <laughs> no, I think it might have been Uganda because it's beautiful there. But they would have spent their whole lives looking into the face of God. Thousands and thousands of years. No sickness, no, revo- no rejection, no death, full revelation. And we would grow up in that same atmosphere of love. And we too would spend eternity looking into the face of love. You see, all of these things like fear and death and rejection and shame, and they're all difficult for us because we were not made to live in a world like that. We were designed and made to live in a, a world that was perfect, undamaged, unbroken and uncorrupted by sin. And if that they hadn't sinned, we would live in a, a world where everyone you ever encountered would only ever see you as amazing, only express love and encouragement and approval. They would only ever look at you and see incredible and beautiful. Because that's how our Father sees us. You know, from his first conscious moment, Adam knew that love being poured into him. He looked up, opened his eyes and, and looked into the eyes of love. Unfiltered, unfiltered love just been poured into him. And our Father's purpose was that every child, every descendant of Adam and his wife should grow up in that same experience of love. And our natural birth should have brought us into a place where we would know what it is to be loved, lovable, approved of, secure, safe, nurtured. And so back in time, back a way back, somewhere in eternity, he determined your time on this earth, your place of birth in this earth, the, the culture that you would grow up in, the experience of love that, and, and family that you would have. So that you would grow up looking into the face of love, not having any concept of fear or death or sickness or insecurity. None of that. Your mum and dad would have been different people. Still the same mum and dad, but their experience would have been of love and approval. And they would just have loved you the same way that they had been loved. But Adam and his wife did sin. And so a second birth is designed that we could come into that experience that we were destined for and made for. It's not that God's purpose for us has changed. He's just bringing us into a new birth. That's why we need to be born again in order to come into this place of sonship. Because birth was how he, he, did, he designed it, that we would come into this experience of being loved, into this experience of, of being embraced and approved of. And so, Jesus came to bring us back into what Adam lost. It's interesting, isn't it? Adam failed in the temptation of the garden, whereas Jesus overcame the temptation in the desert. He faced the exact same situation that Adam faced, but he overcame. And so, therefore, In Christ, it's possible to live the life that we've always been destined for. The life that we should have had as a descendant from Adam, but instead we inherited his brokenness and his sin. But in Christ, we inherit the kingdom. And so Jesus can say in Luke 12, he said, do not worry because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke chapter 12, verse 12, he says that. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not ours to build. 
You don't need to get out there and build a kingdom. What we need to do is, is learn to be his sons and daughters and receive it from him because it's his good pleasure to give it to us as part of our inheritance. How cool is that? And so Jesus came to redeem, restore to us all that Adam and his wife lost. Now I wonder what the plan would have been if Adam and his wife had never sinned. I think we were always destined to be in Christ. I don't know what that would look like in an uncorrupted an un, uh, world. But I think Peter gives us a little glimpse of it in, in his second letter. In chapter 1 he said, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these things, through his glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises. And through these promises, we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What does that look like, to participate in the divine nature? I'm not making this up. It's, it's there. It's in the Bible. Peter says that through his great and precious promises, we can participate in his divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desires. I can't begin to imagine what that looks like. To sit there in the Trinity. We don't become little gods. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, but we participate in that, that environment of love and mutual admiration and everything else that goes on in between Father, Son and Spirit as we're seated in Christ. And so now when we're born again, his purpose is that we come to know him as Father, just like Adam did in the garden, like Jesus did in the, as he walked through earth in the Gospels. I mean, in the Gospels, I counted once, in four, the four Gospels, it's around 200 times Jesus refers to Father. My Father, the Father, our Father, your Father. That's a phenomenal amount of, of, of times. In John's Gospel alone, it's about 110 times. Probably why he's known as the Apostle of Love. And so he intends that we come to know him as Father, like Adam did, like Jesus did. And if we can begin to understand that, if we can, our hearts can begin to receive that revelation, we, we start to get a glimpse of what it means to be a Christian, really means to be a Christian, and where this whole Christianity thing is really headed towards. Just I encourage you, meditate upon what life would have been like if you'd been born into an environment where there's no sin. What would that be like for you? Because that's where he wants to take us to, as a people, not just as individuals, but as a, as a community, as a family, as a people. He wants to take us into that place. I've become convinced that his love is the foundations for everything in the Christian life. You know, people talk about the, the message of the Father heart or the, the message of the Father's love. And it's almost like it's another book you put on the shelf with the prophetic conference and the, the, the worship conference and the intercession conference. But what we've come to understand is that this revelation of his love is actually the bookshelf that everything else sits upon. And so it's this 
foundation of his love that you build evangelism on, you build the prophetic on, you build healing on, you build intercession on, you build worship on, you build your preaching and teaching on. This is the bookshelf. It's not just another book on it. And I'm convinced that the whole, th the whole of the Christian life is, is underpinned by this revelation of his love. Understanding, experiencing, and living in the love of the Father is the, the baby steps of Christianity, or should be the baby steps of Christianity. But it doesn't stop there. I, I, I read in Jeremiah chapter 1, where Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, we're not all called to be prophets to the nations. But I think there's a principle in this. The Lord says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. How could he? Jeremiah didn't exist. I know the Mormons believe that we're all pre-existent souls just waiting to get our own planet. But the Bible very clearly doesn't teach that. So how could God know Jeremiah? Jeremiah didn't exist before he was in his mother's womb. Well, I think this is only possible if God designed and conceived Jeremiah in his own heart. You know, like an ar architect designing a building or, or a designer designing a new outfit or something. They have in their head, they have in their mind, they have in their heart uh, uh, an idea, a picture of what they want this to be. Before they ever put pencil or pen to paper, they, many artists, before they put brush to canvas, they have a concept in their minds of what they want to be, this great sweep of colour or whatever it is. And I think God did that in his heart with, with Jeremiah. And so in his heart, he, he conceived this man, Jeremiah, who would come into the earth at this certain period of time and would become a prophet to the nations just before Israel went into exile. And he, like the, the architect designing, knowing what the, the materials would be, would be in the building, knowing what, how many floors there would be in the building, even to the, the, the extent of knowing what kind of furnishings would, would, there, would be in the building, what kind of tiles and wall coverings and all that kind of thing. God knew the talents and desires and abilities and personality that was going to become Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah. And so he could say with certainty, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I believe it's the same for each one of us. My mum and dad, you know, in 1960 and 1961, didn't know what I was going to be, a boy, a girl, or whatever. They didn't know what my gender would be, or they didn't know would I be okay, normal, whatever normal is. You know, what was I going to be? What was... But God knew. He knew every detail of my life. He knew every detail of your life because he is a real father. It is he who conceived us before we were, and he knew us before we were ever in our mother's womb. He designed the gifts that you would have, the abilities that you would have. He designed us all to be different. Now I've got a friend who says that he's got a wonderful voice. It just has a rough passage in the way out. <laughs> 
In other words, he can't sing a note. But imagine if we could all do we could do things equally well. You know, if I could play guitar like The Edge or Joe Satriani or something, you know, or if I could paint like Da Vinci or Van Gogh or, or any of those guys. If I could do exactly what Matisse did on the canvas, there would be no wonder in art. Because I would look at something amazing and just go, yeah, I can do that. It's easy. I can do it. You know, music would lose its, its charm for us because you'd think, well, I can, I can write that song. I can sing like that. So he designed each of us with different gifts and abilities and talents. You know, guys, stop, stop wishing you had someone else's gifts and abilities. Because he's put something in you that's not in that person. He's put something in your heart that's not in the heart of other people. Or well, it may be similar to some people, but it's different because it's in your heart. It will look different, it will manifest different, it will shape different, it will sound different, it will look different. It won't look like what I do. Even, you, you know, even if you become a preacher and you do the same thing I'm doing, you won't sound like me. Because what's in your heart is not the same as what's in my heart. You don't see through the same eyes as I see through. And so I've, I've learned over the last few years, stop hankering after someone else's gift and ability. Stop wishing you could do it like them and start doing it like you. You know, I, I, I spoke recently at an event and my friend was at the back listening and he said, that was really good. He said, you know, I'm standing here thinking, I wish I could do that like John. And I said to him, yeah, but I was listening to you this morning thinking, wow, I wish I could tell a story like Trevor. <laughs> when he conceived each of us in love, when he decided in his heart to give you life, to, to create you, he decided to make you lovely. Have you ever thought about that, that you're lovely? So many of us believe that we were accidents or mistakes or and we spend our whole lives thinking that we are inconvenient to other people. My existence is just an inconvenience to the world. And so we go through life thinking that we're ugly, we're flawed, we're, we're not good enough. We're not acceptable enough. We're ashamed of being who we are. We separate ourselves from people. We, You know, I, I, I went into lots of things. I was a punk and everything else back in the 70s. You know, went to see The Clash and the, all those guys and... Because I thought, well, I'm so different from people that I might as well act different, behave different. I might, be, I might as well behave obnoxiously because that's how I feel I'm treated. Being conceived outside of marriage, thinking everything bad was my fault. My dad was sick because I was born. My dad died because I, I existed. That just like, so what's the point in trying to fit in and, you know... But as he's been loving me, as I've been allowing him to pour that substance of love into my heart and opening my heart to it, I've come to see that actually being John McDonald is okay. I like him. He's actually an all right guy. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. If you can't see how handsome I am, how great I am, then we'll pray for your eyesight at the end. Okay? <laughs> Okay? 
But you see, if we can't see each other in that light, it just shows the difference between us and God. Because I'm his son, you're his son, you're his daughter. He thinks we are gorgeous and amazing. That's his perspective of you. That's his perspective of me. You see, when God made you, he made you beautiful. God can't make ugly. It's not in his nature. All of beauty resides in him. And so if we're conceived in his heart, where beauty resides, we were conceived in beauty, in love. And we were conceived beautifully. He deliberately designed each one of you, each one of us, and he waited for the exact right moment in history to bring you forth. And I know there's lots of questions, well, what about babies born like this and born like that? Unfortunately, sin comes into it, you know. I think of, you know, when I was growing up, the, the thalidomide scandal, where people took the thalidomide uh, medicine and it actually created deformities in, the, in babies. And that's not how, God didn't design deformed babies in the womb. Unfortunately, something else intervened and caused that to happen. And so I know we have those kinds of questions. But each of our births was a momentous event that all of heaven had waited for. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And he celebrated your arrival. I love the message version of Psalm 22, verse 9 and 10. This is what it says. It says, You were midwife at my birth, setting me at my mother's breasts. When I left the womb, you cradled me. Since the moment of birth, you have been my God. He celebrated our birth. He was there. He cradled us from our mother's womb. We were expected and eagerly awaited by all of heaven. Perhaps you, you have the, the perspective of yourself that you're a mistake, an accident, you're an unwanted child, but, but that's not true. Heaven celebrated you. God Almighty, who is your real father, was there at your birth and he took you in his arms and embraced you as his own. Because he was the one who actually conceived of you in his own heart. He's the one who breathed life into you. And all, you know, I wasn't looking forward to coming into this world, but this, this, these scriptures have given me a, a totally new perspective on my birth by coming into this world. I was wanted. Not only was I wanted, but I was joyfully received. And so were you. You know, we've got this idea that God is the big bad judge. He's going to deal severely with us if we step out of line. We don't, we don't see this celebrating joyous God because we have this perspective that we are criminals in the eyes of heaven and we only deserve judgment and punishment. Where did we get such an idea from? So this wasn't the picture the early church had of, of God. Actually, this is a, something that developed and was crystallized by a man called Anselm, who was the Bishop of Canterbury, Archbishop of Canterbury, rather, in, I think, the end of the 11th century, beginning of the 12th century. And he, had this, he created this courtroom scene where God is the judge, we're the accused in the dock, Satan's the accuser, Jesus, our defence lawyer. And I don't know if you've been in court. I've, I've been in court as a witness and on the other side <laughs> as the accused. The judge is not your friend. You don't make jokes with the judge because he can, make, he can give you a hefty sentence if he thinks you're, you're at it and playing the joker. 
He's staring, his son's smiling, severe. And we've developed this idea of God as being smiling, unsmiling, stern, severe. And we need Jesus to protect us from him. That doesn't make sense. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. How can he then oppose God the Father in order to protect us? That doesn't make sense to me. You know, we're waiting in the judgment, we're waiting in the, the judge of all humanity to pass some awful sentence upon us because he's just desperate to destroy mankind and wipe us all out. But we have gentle Jesus, meek and mild, saying, look, look, don't forget the holes, don't forget the blood. And he's like, oh, whew, glad you reminded me, Jesus, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> it, it's crazy, that's, I mean, that's how art and theology depict him, but it's not who he is. It's actually not how the Bible presents him. He's not fierce and vengeful, he's not full of anger toward the world. He's not been held back by lovely Jesus. You know, God so loved the world. It doesn't say that God was so angry at the world. It doesn't say God was so desperate to judge the world he sent his son to stop his judgment. It says God so loved the world, he sent his son. Why did he send his son? To bring us home, to redeem us back to our, our place of origin in his heart. There are no such thing as, as illegitimate children in this world. Every single child born on this planet is wanted by their true father who just happens to be Almighty God. He's the true father. He's the real father of all of us. And so this whole thing we'd speak about the father heart of God or the father's love, it's not just a teaching or a doctrine. It's, it's not just even an experience that heals our pain. It's about God restoring us to our original state. It's bringing us back to where we were always intended to be. Like Adam in the garden, walking with him in fellowship and relationship and intimacy. Bringing us back into the experience of being sons and daughters. Bringing us back and redeeming to us the knowledge and experience of walking with him as our true father. That's what this whole thing is headed towards. That's what Christ I believe Christianity is really all about. Walking with God as our father. And his desire is that we would get a new perspective on life. We would get a, a new perspective on our own origins. That we were birthed out of his very heart. He's the one who, who gives us life. And, and it's actually, despite all the sin and corruption in the world, it's his life that sustains us. That in him, we live and move and have our being, even though we don't know him. Even though we live estranged from him. All that you are was designed and conceived by your Heavenly Father. Yeah, I know the world's messed us up a little bit, but it's not a ra some random evolutionary chance that you were born. The fall of man may have got in the way. Adam may have messed up, but he did not stop or hinder God's plan for you and me. And his plan was always that we would be his sons and daughters that we would come into Christ and enjoy the benefits of what it means to be sons and daughters to God, our real Father. Because that's who He is. That's who you are to Him. <laughs> Let's pray. Finish a little bit early. 
Father, thank you. You're such a good, good Father. Lord, in fact, that song doesn't even express it enough. We can't, we can never dive to the, the depths of your goodness. We can never scale to the heights of your love and your affection for us. So, Father, we just ask in the days and weeks and months and years ahead, you enable us to live in the place of being loved. Father, that revelation would erupt in our hearts and we would understand that all that we are is because of you. That we've always belonged to you, but for a time we were estranged. For a time we, we'd lost our way and couldn't find our way back home. And so you sent Jesus, our older brother, to show us the way home. Thank you, Father, that you're bringing us home to your embrace, to your bosom, to be nurtured and loved by you, to become all that you intended us to be. Thank you, Father. Not just a better version of, of John, but Father, you, wanted, you don't just want to make a better version of us, you want to make us totally new in your love. Thank you, Father, that we are the objects of your affection and your love. Thank you that you are not counting our sins against us. But joy abounds in your heart because we have been reconciled to you. Father, open the eyes of our hearts. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to see this great hope of inheritance and love that we have been called to. Thank you, Papa. I don't know how to say any more than that except thank you, Papa, for loving me, for loving us, for bringing us back into the center of your affections, becoming the objects of your desire and blessing and love. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.